Hello, Disc Golf fans, and welcome back to another episode of Running It with Nate Sexton. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. He is the Innova team captain, chomping at the bit to defend his crown of Las Vegas, and our host, Mr. Nate Sexton. Nate, how you doing today, man? I'm great, Jared. I'm, I'm back on the road. So yeah, it's exciting getting back into the <sighs> tournament scene. Yeah, you've uh, you've been super busy. You're already out in Las Vegas. You're doing all sorts of fancy and of a team captain things. Are you uh, are you ready for this, man? Yeah, I think I am. I, I mean, it, it's it's been an interesting last year, but uh, I've been a professional a long time, so uh, I, I don't know exactly how it's going to go. But I'm just more excited than anything, and and really happy to be here and able to uh, you know do all those media duties and and those things that I haven't been able to participate in for uh, longer than I would have liked. Well, from a fan's point of view, man, we can't wait to see you get back out there. It's it's always better when you're playing, so we're we're looking forward to it as well. Now, before we have uh, an amazing show today, everybody knows what happens. We've got to take care of a little bit of business, and of course, once again, we're talking about our amazing friends over at FisherDiscGolf.com. They've just been an amazing support of running it with Nate Sexton, and they've got a lot of awesome stuff going on in the disc golf world right now. Uh, uh, including being the official sponsor of the Ledgestone Insurance Open. Um, they have their first wave of the limited run molds available. Those are getting ready to drop at FisherDiscGolf.com. So if you guys want to get your hands on some of that plastic, make sure you're checking out that website. Um, Nate, they're one of only 27 total Ledgestone uh, official retailers for these discs. So uh, really doing some some cool things out there. And again, you guys know they've got all the molds. You're going to hear, uh, uh, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about some of the great Innova discs that uh, Mr. Donapace has created and put out there. You guys can find almost all of those at FisherDiscGolf.com. Uh, Adam and Levi just really doing some awesome things. The website has new discs dropping every day. And again, you guys want to get ready for that ledge stone drop fisherdiscgolf.com is going to have them go ahead and follow them on social media at fisherdiscgolf of course you can catch them tuesdays and fridays for their amazing disc stacks uh, which is a lot of fun to participate in and on top of having all of this awesome stuff they help our listeners out with a little bit of a discount right nate yeah you got to use our code run it 10 you always get free shipping and man that limited run stuff is just crazy right now so get it at fisherdiscgolf Last week, we had an awesome episode, Ask Nate Anything. We just let the fans bombard us, and you just kind of opened up the book and, and answered all the questions. People really seem to be enjoying that one. So far in our run here, Nate, we've had some really good episodes. We've even had some great episodes. But today, you've booked what I would say is a Hall of Fame episode, right? I, I would think so. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. I think we, we're going in a little bit different direction. I feel like we've had a lot of top players and friends of mine on the show, and it's really fun talking to them and catching up. But like, like a couple of the questions, I'm asking them kind of for the benefit of the listener. I sort of already know the answer. Our guest today, that isn't really the case because we are lucky enough to be joined by Innova Champion Discs co-founder and president, Mr. Dave Dunapace. Dave, welcome. <laughs> uh, thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Yeah. So pretty incredible. The history. I mean, I honestly don't know as much as I wish I did. Dave, you and I have kind of known each other a while, but I, I feel like I've never really been lucky enough or had the chance to kind of sit down with you and talk about the history of things. So I'm like, I've been excited all week 
uh, trying to think about what I want to learn and, and uh, just kind of hear as much as you're willing to share with us about the early days and, and your memories for from how disc golf kind of formally began. Well, cool. So I think where I want to start, what I'm the most interested to hear is, uh, you know, everyone kind of knows you now as like a, a disc designer and a, the leader of the biggest company in disc golf. But I want to go before all that and sort of hear in your opinion, like what were your what what kind of span of years would you say was sort of like your time as close as you ever were to the very, very top of the game? Like when were you at your competitive peak? Uh, from 1978 to 1985, I think was the last year where I had a chance to win the Worlds. So that's like an era that I obviously did not experience and don't have a whole lot of experience with. I want to talk about, I guess, the first event that I looked when I look at your PDGA. I'm sure you played disc golf before this, uh, but that this $50,000 Waymo tournament that must have been just like groundbreaking, right? I mean, it, the, the payouts there look like payouts from today and with the, in, adjusting for inflation from 1979. I mean, it must have been kind of mind blowing. Well, it seemed like that, but it, as it turned out, the, the payoff was a lot was discs, you know, they, oh. instead of money, it was discs. But the PDGA still reports it as money, like the guy got $10,000, but he didn't really get $10,000? Yeah, he got some money and some discs. Uh, Tom Kennedy was the, the guy that won it. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I saw that. And I saw you took 20th, but still was like a, quite a payday, like 600 something dollars, which I plugged into a little inflation calculator. And it was more like 2500 in today's dollars. And that winning uh, amount of money was like $36,000 for that one tournament. But interesting to hear that maybe... That wasn't all cash. No. It, what, what, was, uh, what was really cool about it, and, and un, I was almost unable to participate in that event, but what was cool about it is we had arguably what was definitely the strongest field of players that had ever gotten together at that point in time. But, uh, you know, it was fun to compete against them. And I was almost unable to do that because I had uh, – dislocated and uh, fractured my wrist uh, a few days before that. And I had just gotten out of the hospital two days before that tournament started. I was wearing a cast. During the whole thing? Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, so 20th was a hell of a finish. Yeah, I thought so. I thought it did pretty well. You know, I had to put the, it was my, it was my left arm, thankfully. I wouldn't. Oh, okay. Good. But I, I, I put my arm on my head. <laughs> and through that way what so that it would minimize like moving around and having pain yeah well I w there was no pain it was just uh you know it was in the way it was uh sure there was some weight to the cast and things like that and that I, I, I just tucked it on my head and it was like z zero torque there so <laughs> and i played that way wow what what would you say is like your earliest memory of like a disc sport a disc sport you or just throwing a throwing a frisbee yeah just like when when and how like in what in what year roughly well i i got a a mars platter in uh, 1958 cost 69 cents and uh started playing frisbee in, in 58 with a mars platter wow just like everybody else you know it was uh it was fun you know that and hula hoops and and sure. uh, pogo sticks and stuff like that. Wow, that's incredible. So it turns out it still is fun, which is which I'm I'm thankful for. <laughs> still going. 
Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. And then I guess the next thing that kind of stands out to me, and I know you had a chance to kind of compete in this venue, but I would just like to hear some stories and some, and what you remember from those like incredible Rose bowl world Frisbee championship events. That was like overalls, like freestyle and uh, ultimate was in there, all kind of guts and everything. But it, there was like thousands and thousands of fans in one of the most hallowed grounds of sports in the whole country. And I was watching a little video on YouTube that was like, this airplane is full of the hundred best Frisbee players. And they've all been flown in all expenses paid to the Rose bowl. And it's like, wow, you know, in some ways I feel like we've come so far. And then when I read, see that it's like, whoa, like they were kind of, you know, there was like that happened. And then we had kind of a lull, I guess. And now we're kind of climbing back up. Is, Is that, is that an accurate way to think about it? Or what do you remember from that incredible time? Well, it it was, I, I got to say it's dichotomous there. That was the Frisbee world, you know, Yes, basically. And most of that was due to Ed Hedrick and uh, his promotion of Frisbee as a sport. And, you know, the disc golf wasn't even a Frisbee sport at first. It was, you know, distance and MTA and freestyle and accuracy. I'm not sure if there was another one after that. This golf wasn't added until later at the uh, urging of uh, Dan Roddick, who uh, who I think his logic with Ed was, he said, uh, you know, ultimate players have one disc for a whole team. Disc golfers have 12 discs for one person. And I think Ed got the ramifications of that. And sure. Disc golf became part of the NAS, the National Series uh, uh, Frisbee qualification events, where if you made it, you got to go to, uh, at, at the time I did it, the two or three years that I did it there, uh, Irvine, California, and uh, qualify for the Rose Bowl finals. And, and roughly how many fans were there? And, and did they pay to get in or was it free? At the Rose Bowl? Yeah. Yeah, the Rose Bowl, that was just a demonstration thing. Uh, the finals were already over at, at uh, uh, Irvine, but that was a demonstration thing. I think there was 50,000 fans there. That's incredible. Bowl. And I don't know if they were paid or not, but uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, know? that's. I mean, I can't imagine. We're a long way. I mean, disc golf is a hard sport to have 50,000 people watch, admittedly. You can't really, like, put people in the grandstands, but – Gosh, I mean, I can't imagine any other time when there's been even close to that many people watching disc sports live. That It's just sort of, it's just incredible. And especially in such a famous venue too, you know, it just doesn't even seem possible today. But there was advertising for it. They advertise on television. Wow. Come see the, the, the greatest Frisbee athletes in the world uh, compete at the Rose Bowl on whatever the date was. And and you got to compete in distance there, yeah. But it was again, it was a demonstration thing. But yeah, so it's it, you were like a, a kind of like a formal. If you won, it wasn't like you were the necessarily the champion. You just got the most claps on the day. That's that's right. But you know, it was a demonstration. But those guys all wanted to beat me. Oh, of course, to show that they were better or something. But they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. Uh, okay, so I guess the next uh, 
kind of in my my uh our research team i say this a lot but our research team is pretty small over here at running it with nate sexton but the next place that i kind of wanted to go was sort of like the the inaugural uh pdga world championship in 1982 and you you finished second and the winner was harold duvall another co-founder of innova champion so i and and innova was founded the very next year so i just kind of wanted to hear about how that happened, you know, obviously you guys were thinking we can, we need a better disc, but like, yeah, you guys went one, two at the very first world championships. Had you been friends a long time? When did the conversation begin? And, and how did you even, how did you even go about getting discs made and, and starting a, a company? Well, that's a big question there. Yeah, we got time. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll hit you with a lot of ways, but yeah, go <laughs> say whatever you like about it. Okay, well. To, to start, Harold was my protege. He was uh, the guy I was coaching at the time. I coached a bunch of people. You know, as I told you earlier, I coached the uh, the previous year's Rose Bowl winner in distance, Tim Carmel. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I coached a dozen world champions. Uh, I actually enjoyed, and I still do, enjoy coaching as much as playing, as long as I can see some results. <laughs> from my coaching it's it's very gratifying yeah and harold was uh i think he was the yeah he was the first world champion that i coached uh sam ferrance although i didn't i didn't coach him at disc golf i coached him at distance and he he won the world he got the world record later but uh yeah harold and i were just playing buddies and i was his coach and mentor uh, and we went to a, uh, I don't know if he was with me. We went to a, a, uh, NAS series event, a qualifying event in Chicago. It had, uh, disc golf and DDC, I think. I didn't play DDC at that point in time. Uh, and it was windy. We were on, is that Lake Michigan there? Yes. It's a big old body of water and there's wind blowing in off the lake. And it was really hard to compete with these discs. We had 40 molds at the time and probably the audience does, doesn't know what a 40 mold is, but it's, it's a Frisbee type thing, a catch disc basically that had some uh, phosphorescence put in it to make it heavier. Uh, mine was 149 grams and it was, considerably larger than what our discs are today so they were not very fast and not very wind resistant they didn't have a lot of torque resistance at all uh so you know and i'm playing in this thing and i'm struggling uh as everybody else is too and it and it got me to thinking that man there's got to be a better tool for playing disc golf you know when it when the wind comes up like this it's practically impossible and uh I'm I'm hanging around in the park in between rounds or whatever, and I'm watching these guys throw this thing called a Skyro. It was uh, the precursor to the Aerobee. Uh, okay. I don't know how that worked out, but they stopped making Skyros and started making Aerobees after that. But this thing, when you're used to seeing the uh, speed decay rate of a of a frisbee, and you look at these things flying. It appears as if they're speeding up after yeah. they're thrown. It's an it's an optical illusion, of course, but they they slow down so slowly compared to frisbees that it, it's just amazing. 
And I'm thinking, man, there's got to be something in between a Skyro and a 40 mold. There's got to be. So that's when I started working on it at that point in time. And, and, and what year that. was that? Would you, or do you know what year that was? Yeah, 1982. Okay. So same, but before that world championship. Before, yes. Okay. But that world championship. Well, well, no, I guess it was after the world championship. Okay. Uh, okay. The, that's the, the PD, PDGA world championship, not the whammo one. Yeah. Okay. The PDGA, the very first PDGA world championship, but back then that probably didn't feel like, you know, there were already more established world championships going on. Now that feels like the, the only one, but there was yeah. a lot of stuff happening back then. Yeah, there was the Flying Disc World Championships up in Santa Cruz, which was I won the uh, the the golf portion of that uh, one year. I think it was uh, geez, nineteen seventy nine or eighty, one of those two years. Uh, cool. I think the distance was eighty one. You know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, I think you, you got to quite a bit of it. I, I feel like I should jump in and uh, clarify for our listeners that DDC is a, is a game called Double Disc Court. It's played by four players, two to a team. Look it up on YouTube. It's actually really a fantastic game. There's been times where I've set it up and had like a nice portafield set up in the right discs and played it with people for a couple of days and sort of thought to myself, like, this might be, like, I played a lot of Ultimate and I played a lot of disc golf. And in a lot of ways, like, this is more fun in a way when you have the right people uh it's a really really fun game to play so if you ever get the chance try that out but just so you know what he's referring to when he says ddc yeah ddc was a blast i did become a a a top level ddc player probably number two or three in the world uh behind snapper pearson and uh vingerelli ron vingerelli and before that uh, i can't remember his name but he stopped playing yeah harold and i played together uh, finished second one year, and me and Kim, Kim and I, uh, Selinski played several other years. Usually finished third, uh, and and never any worse than that. I don't believe, but yeah, DDC was great. But I didn't see a future for DDC because the skill level entry point was so high. It was like uh, freestyle, you know, to, yes. to become a freestyler. My goodness. It's really, really difficult to become a, a proficient DDC player was very, very difficult. A disc golfer, man, you just grab a disc and start chucking it and you can start from zero and still have fun. You know, yeah. you're functional at zero. You know? Yeah, so- I, I 100% agree with that. And And when I coached disc golf for Oregon State University, I would have our, our players play DDC and it, and we're playing indoors. So there's no wind or anything, but to work on kind of like their touch skills. And you're right. They were awful. Like compared to where they were as disc golfers, <laughs> DDC is so tricky to, to go to such a light disc and really have to care about your angles and understand that the, how it's going to glide back and how it's going to interact with the ground when it comes in with speed. You're absolutely right about the entry point. Really, really difficult to play it in a way that you're going to enjoy until you're a pretty proficient thrower of a lot of different, probably a lot of different kinds of discs to understand what you're doing. And that you just named the easy parts. The hard parts was defense. Yeah. Well, once you get that, the strategy was like even a whole nother level. Yeah. Like we're just talking about throwing it in the box 
and <laughs> with consistency, getting yeah. a serve that's going to work, you know, but yeah, absolutely strategy. Then when you get, that's when it became really fun for me was when you're interacting with your partner. And yeah, I mean, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of that. Cause I think most of our viewers would probably never seen our listeners probably never seen that game played, but there's definitely nice YouTube videos about it and you can understand what it is and maybe try it sometime, but really fun. But yeah, I guess the next thing I want to hear is like, so then, yeah, you had that idea that uh, there can be a better disc. Like then it's time to found the company, I guess. And, and yeah. how did, who, who is involved and how did you get the discs physically made? Well, there was a quite a bit of time between the idea and uh, uh, starting to make molds. Uh, you know, first I put things down on paper that made sense to me. Uh, I wanted the, uh, you know, it was obvious to me to make the thing more aerodynamic, but exactly how to make it uh, more aerodynamic was the, was the question. And believe it or not, uh, there is this, uh, I've said it before, people are change averse. You know, a lot of people are change averse. And to skip ahead, I'll, I'll come back, but to skip ahead, when we came out with our, our disc in 83, uh, there was a big uproar for this thing should never be allowed to be played. It's going to destroy all the courses. Uh, they, they go way too far, blah, blah, blah. So I couldn't make a model that was too far advanced. And if you see in the patent, there are two drawings in there. The one we came out with and the future model. So you can see... I mean, I knew it was going to move to the future model eventually, but people are going to have to accept the primary model first. And that phenomenon, believe me, has happened over and over and over with my designs. You know, I, I come up with the designs and, and they go, oh, this is terrible, blah, 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 whatever reason they make. They're all terrible reasons, believe me. But later on, that disc becomes state of the art, you know, but it, it it's... <laughs> it's rejected initially. Aviar is the most uh, obvious one. You know, for a year we couldn't sell an Aviar when it came out. Wow! Nobody wanted it because it didn't go as far as an Arrow. You know? Yeah. We had to explain to people this is a short-range disc. This is putt and approach. This is not long-range driving. You know? Oh, oh! It's like a putter in your bag. You know? It, people just did not get it for a while. Now they get it. So anyway, wow. I, I, I come off the uh, North American series in Chicago and go back home, do some drawings. I lived in San Diego at the time, and I golfed at Morley Field on a regular basis. Uh, and I, I finally figured out a way. <laughs> I was, oh, I was going to graduate school at the time, too, a PhD program in, in, in uh, San Diego. So I was pretty poor. Uh, <laughs> I had a, basically I had a, a mat knife and a soldering iron and pieces of Frisbees. And I took the pieces and the soldering iron and the mat knife, cut them up, and welded them together, more or less melted them together with the soldering iron and made models. And before our first disc was done, I had probably made 400 models. And what I was doing with the models was I was, testing, wow. I was testing all the parameters that mattered uh, for, for flight and control flight. I was looking to get a straight 
flying disc that went farther than a Frisbee and had more torque resistance than a Frisbee. You could play with it better in the wind and so forth and so on. So I was testing all those parameters to see uh, what needed to be incorporated in the design. Wow. I got it. I tested. Oh, yeah. Some of the Snapper Pearson, who is a Hall of Famer, was one of the guys that saw one of my models uh, the first time anybody had ever seen it in like, I don't know, November of uh, 82. And so he got to see it. And everybody that was there, Chris Dodds and, and uh, other friends of mine that were there, they, they were just blown away. Like, wow. You know, that <laughs> I want one. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> it, it, it makes perfect sense to me, the whole thing, you know, all the uncomfortable the people that are uncomfortable with seeing the game change quickly i mean that that makes perfect sense and i i totally see what you mean like i feel like i've even even experienced some of those battles um as that happens over and over again as technology progresses and i think every sport probably deals with that it's pretty crazy to think about though because was the first one called it's i know it was it called an eagle at first and now it's known as an arrow is that the very first one or that was the first one but to go back to that change of verse thing yeah. Once I had the model made, I was confident that I could, uh, you know, put a product into the market that would sell very well. I needed backers. I needed money to make yeah. it and start it and stuff like that. Couldn't get them. They, everybody, everybody was just, ah, man, I don't know. That's not. Well, I mean, I can tell you what Dan Mangoni said. He was the, you know, he was the biggest disc seller at uh, La Mirada for a long time. And he said, the market is not ready for that. Okay, that was his reaction to it. Uh, huh. I I tried to get Ed Hedrick to be interested in, and he wouldn't give me the time of day. Uh, Snapper, uh, he didn't say no, but you could see he was thinking the same thing as Mangoni that he didn't think the market was ready for that uh, advancement. And he so, but he was the only one that didn't say no. He said, yeah. give, me, give me two weeks and I'll give you an answer. Uh, Jan Sobel, who was uh, Destiny Discs at the time, he said, no. He said, no, I got enough partners. I was actually helping uh, design discs for him at that time, too. Uh, I helped with the design of the original puppy for him. Uh, oh. Yeah, that's a little known fact. <laughs> wow. Uh, anyway, so I went up to La Mirada. I was playing around with... Uh, uh, Harold Duvall, and I'm lamenting the fact that I can't get any backers for my new invention. And Harold says, I'll back you just like that. He said, well, and well, don't you want to see it fly? No, I don't need to. You know, I know you don't say anything. <laughs> uh, so that was the start of the company right then. Boom. It was Harold and I. And then uh, Harold, uh, and that was like in, I don't know, December, January or something like that of uh, 8283. And uh, he said he knew, he knew the guy that could run the office. That uh, was Tim Selensky, who was working in the shipping department for Whammo at that point in time. So he had a, a very convenient customer list uh, that, we could, ah. yeah, that we could tell people about and stuff like that. And Tim was like, everybody loved him. So uh, he could deal with uh, people on the phone and stuff like that. Uh, so it turned out later. So it was me, Tim, and Harold at first. But then 
they didn't have enough money. It was going to cost us more than what Harold had. So his brother put up uh, another, it was $9,000 that they each put up to get the mold uh, made and the first run uh, made. And it was a crappy aluminum mold and it was done wrong. That's how the Eagle came out. Uh, (laughs) the, The Eagle came out at the second tooling. The first tooling was wrong and I had them retool it and they did that wrong. That was the Eagle. And when we shot it, I could see, no, this is not what I want, but this is a, this is a, a disc that uh, the disc golf community is going to like, but this is not the one I want because this one is not straight. It, yeah. uh, it has a turn to it, which I learned later was a more valuable uh, characteristic for most people uh, yeah. that want to throw far. They want to throw the hyzer flip. You know, I just wanted accuracy and, and, and uh, length. But one month after the Eagle and we ran the first run of Eagle, we, we turned it into the arrow and the Eagle was no more. Yeah. And so the existing discs were ma- mainly whammos or something. And, and what, it, how much did a disc cost? And then was your disc more or, or were they about the same or? No, they were exactly the same. They're like, far as I can remember, it was like five bucks or something for some small quantity of it. I remember uh, that uh, it was four dollars and ten cents for a uh, hundred of them. I think it was something like that. Okay. Each, of course. Yeah, yeah. For 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 the consumer to buy it, or not for yeah. you to make it. That was for the people that we dealt with. We didn't deal with the public directly ever. Okay, yeah, to get them on into retailers. Right. Well, yeah, people that were at the courses because, uh, yeah, we didn't get them into uh, stores until a year later, and Harold was responsible for that. He was the first one to get it into big box stores, and uh, him and uh, he and Steve Lambert created this uh, package deal where uh, they would guarantee that the disc would sell, and they had a a map to what the, where the courses uh, that they could play nearby and a little stand there that showed everybody things. So as people filtered by in the store, they'd see this and uh, wow, this is pretty cool. And they'd go out and, and we'd make new customers all over the place. That was, it was brilliant. Wow. And how much farther, like roughly percentage wise, was it going than the existing equipment, like 10, 20% longer or. Uh, Let's see. I had the world record at 458 feet with a whammo. That's what they call the uh, unweighted whammos. The uh, oh, forget the name of the class, but whatever. That and just to just to interject, that's an insane distance for that type of disc. I, it doesn't compute for me. Well, it's a record that still stands today. Yeah, I'm not surprised. That's that's unbelievably far for the for like a lightweight what would now be described as like a beach frisbee. So in those same conditions, I could throw our arrow 600 feet. <laughs> that wow. again does not compute. That's a, that's by all accounts, a putter in so that is, today's game. That's a 33% increase. It's a huge. Yeah. That's why they sold. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's revolutionary. Yeah. 
it's almost like you were forcing the hand of everybody else. Like, we're going to go out and play this round. You guys use whatever you want, but I've got this thing here that I can throw way farther. And I imagine people were watching that and thinking, I got to get on board with that or I'm, I'm going to be outclassed here. Yes. That, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, they, everybody wanted that, you know, everybody wanted the, uh, the end of a but before that, they they weren't buying whammos particularly. They were buying Jan Sobel stuff. The puppies and super puppies and the nine inch vectors and nine and a quarter inch vectors because he made them heavy. He made them bricks. You could play with those things in a win because they were two hundred plus grams. Wow. Yeah. They were really, really heavy. And Ed uh wouldn't make his heavy for a long time. Uh and then finally, when he did, they, they would shatter real easily when they broke because they had so much phosphorescence in them. They had very little plastic, so not a lot of integrity. Uh, and and Sobo was taking over the market at this time, basically the same time, 1982 uh, and, and 83. And we came out with ours in 83. And there was a controversy around uh, the PDGA uh, making a weight limit for their tournaments that they had. And the first weight limit that they picked out, I believe it was 6.8 grams per centimeter, if I am correct. And as practically to a man, everybody just rejected that and just, we, we're not, we're not going to go for that at all. And Stork and some other people, Dan Roddick and some other people, came up with a compromise, uh, 8.3 grams per centimeter. And that calmed everybody down, and that gave them a weight that they felt comfortable with, that they could uh, play with. Uh, uh, and uh, the riots stopped, so to speak. And what that means, just to just to let people know that – the maximum weight of a disc is a function of its diameter. So that's why, say, your destroyer maxes out at 175 grams, but your rock, which is slightly bigger, can go up to 180 grams. So that's what he's talking about when he's talking about a gram per centimeter uh, a limit. Yes, and our arrow was 180 grams. The AVR was 176 grams. Wow. And then I guess what what year would you say, like, Innova became the number one disc manufacturer. How long did that take? <laughs> About six months. That's it. I was going to say, sounds like 83 also. Yeah. <laughs> 1983. Wow. So successful. Oh yeah. Right out of the gate. Successful with the Eagle and the arrow. The Eagles was selling for 50 bucks a piece. And yeah, it was crazy. Wow. And, I'm- and the, and the, all the molding was like outsourced. At that yes. point. Yes. And the, actually the hot stamping was out, outsourced too at first. And the reason why we brought it in-house is because we were not getting good quality molding and not getting good quality hot stamping. So hot what, stamping we bought, what, brought in-house first. What year what, did that kind of, those kind of shifts start to happen? Let's see. 84, I think we started uh, hot stamping in-house and that was me. <laughs> I had to hot stamp everything and then, do all the shipping and stuff. So I was the, the one man crew. Uh, are we talking, are we literally in a house or are we in a, or are we in a, uh, uh, like an office? At, well, at that time we were at a, in a warehouse space. It was a 1500 
square feet, which okay. is not big. No. And I had to build these wooden racks and stuff that jammed the place with plastic all over the place. Yeah, it wow. wasn't very good. But we didn't start molding in-house until we went through like four different molders and then moved to a, a facility in uh, Ontario. It was 7,500 square feet. And, and in 1988, we got our first molding machine. Okay. And you can guess who the molder was. That was me too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I was doing <laughs> the molding, the stamping, and the shipping. <laughs> Did you have a a patent or a copyright or something on this? I mean, as you're coming up with this revolutionary design, are you not worried about the next person coming and going into competition with you? How did that work? Oh, yeah, we had a patent on the, as I mentioned before, and it's got the 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 current drawing and then the future drawing and the patent. Yeah, we got a patent uh, applied for it in, I don't know, 83. I think we got it in 84. I'm not positive about that. but And the patent is like basically for the beveled edge. Is that, am I correct? Yeah, everybody calls it beveled edge, but it's triangular rim. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, to make it, to sharpen it, you know, to make it into the, the very, very beginning of what we think of as a modern wing of a, of a disc golf disc. Yeah, and if I had been smarter uh, with the patent, I ended up having to write that thing myself because our patent lawyers, who were supposed to be the best in L.A., weren't very savvy about uh, science and stuff like that and writing patent, patents, uh, which was surprising. But I would have said this is a non-catch disc. This is a throw disc. And that, yeah. that didn't occur to me to say that uh until much later this is not a disc you play catch with this is a disc you throw you play disc golf with it's a golf disc yeah but it wasn't that specific i guess i'm curious to hear how in those days if you can sort of recall like what your what your vision was for how like are you surprised how big it's gotten or were you kind of like hopeful or is it so far beyond your wildest dreams at this point? Just kind of like what your take on the, on the growth uh, that you've seen in your life. Well, that's kind of uh, that's got a lot of different stages to it. Initially, uh, although it wasn't happening initially, I thought, man, this is, if anybody's like me, I walked out to La Mirada with a package whammo disc. I think it was a 50, a 50 mold and uh, instantly fell in love with it. I was like, wow. And I'm thinking, man, I think everybody would, would love this. Now this was uh, way before we started a company. This is in 1977, but I still remember that, you know, how quickly I was taken by this. You know, I, at that time I could throw maybe 90 yards, you know, on my best throw. I remember my score at La Mirada, my first round was, was 44 over. And that was just hitting metal on the chains, not actually putting it in the tray, hitting metal on chain, 44 over. So I started from way down. (laughs) Anyway, so after the company started and my vision, I can tell you what my vision was. My vision was for us to be a sport in every country of the world. Uh, And uh, I kind of thought maybe we'd be on TV and stuff like that. But uh, I wanted it to be like ball golf as famous or more famous than ball golf and have the same sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, thought about it for from people, except for this is not a rich man's sport. This is an every man's sport. 
but essentially it's just like ball golf. Uh, not everybody has had that same vision at all. And that's not the way it was going for the first, geez, I don't know, 12 years or so like that. Uh, it, disc golf grew, but it grew so slowly because uh, people just weren't aware that there was disc golf. There weren't that many courses to become aware of disc golf. Uh, and it was growing really, really slowly. Uh, but I believe a pivotal thing happened in 1995. And that's when we introduced our disc catcher to the world. And mm. we have a growth chart that shows that it, it started taking off way, way better after 1975, after 1995, when we introduced the disc catcher. And basically, it was because our disc catcher was less expensive. You didn't have to design your course with our specifications. You could design it the way that you wanted to. And although we gave the parameters on how to do it safely and stuff like that, where Ed had to okay the design, you know, and, and people didn't like that. You know, so like he was like going out in person or at least looking at some really detailed plans and, and having to say, okay, this is a course that I'll allow my baskets to be. I'm not sure how they did it, but it was a hassle. And we heard about it. Well, Tim heard about it on the phone from all the customers that when they found out that we were making targets, they go, oh, my, thank God. Wow. And then at this point, you know, I mean, maybe could you kind of like let us know what what kind of goes into now designing discs? Because that's still something you're doing on a daily basis, sort of, is like tweaking and, and thinking and, and making going for that next breakthrough. It's just, it's the same thing that I always did. You know, I test parameters on the disc. Well, first I think of something I need, I, w- I need in the disc to do. And, you know, because of that, the earlier messing around with this, with the, all the models that I made, I learned what can make discs do certain things. And then I designed something that, that does that. But mostly it comes from me being a player and, thinking I'd like to have a disc that does this, you know, and then usually it just comes to me in the night uh, in a dream that um, how to do that or how I might do that. And then I yeah. go out and see if it works. Now, is it, excuse me if I, I don't know, but is it safe to assume that in the early days of disc golf, people were playing with one disc or two discs? I mean, were you the one that kind of came up with the long range, mid range putt and approach did that come from Innova? Uh, most of that did come from Innova. There was, uh, Sobel did have basically two types of discs. He had uh, the putter, which was the puppy and the super puppy. And then he had the vector, which I, I guess you could putt with it. I did putt with a 220 gram nine inch vector, but they, you could roll with those too. So that was kind of like two, uh, two discs for two different, purposes but yeah after uh you know after we designed the arrow and the avr after that we started to get purpose discs purpose specific discs either long range driver extra long range driver or mid-range or whatever it is that yeah we started uh we we created those categories there were no categories before that Wow, that's amazing. How did the name Innova, who came up with the name Innova and, and where does it come from? Uh, I believe, I'm not sure, it was either Harold or Harold and I uh, 
came up with that. And it, it, it was, now that I'm thinking of it, it's probably me because I like the double entendres and stuff like that. But it was innovation and in Nova, you know, exploding. Uh, Nova uh, Company is yeah. a rapidly growing company. Nice. So combination of those two. How, how do you, what, what do you think it meant to have Ken Climo throwing Innova discs? Well, you know, that was great. I mean, Ken was, <laughs> Ken, I don't know if I should say this, but uh, <laughs> he, as much self-confidence as, as Ken had, he could be, you know, you'd think, okay, this guy's a head case. It'd be hard to work with. No, not true at all. Ken was a lot easier to work with than a lot of the pros that we have to work with today, believe it or not. <laughs> he, he was, he's perfect. You know, all he wanted to do was kick butt on the disc golf course. You know, that's it. Yeah. Well, he succeeded. Oh, yeah. 12 or 13 times. Wow. <laughs> yeah, at minimum. <laughs> I appreciate, you know, having the, the team, I really do, as a, a promotional tool for disc golf. You know, that, that's one reason why we have uh, so many women on our team. You know, it's a promotional tool for women's disc golf, which in, in my opinion should be way bigger than it is. And I don't mean professional women's disc golf. I mean, that's the platform we have, right. To, to, to show off women playing disc golf. That's a platform we have, but recreational disc golf, why aren't there thousands and thousands more women playing recreational disc golf? You know, I understand them not wanting to compete in tournaments or something like that, but geez, just to go out and play, it's a perfect sport for anybody. Yeah, you know, going back to what you said uh, about the the pros and people maybe not even understanding, I've been in disc golf now for probably about six or seven years. I've really enjoyed playing it and started to to, to really uh, absorb it. But gosh, I was probably playing for almost a year before I realized how big the the pro tour and the and the pro circuit was. It was just me and my buddies going out to the park, having a great time. It was free. Um, you know, you could get a disc for 15, 20 bucks and uh, it was a lot cheaper than a six or $700 set of golf clubs. And then I kind of dug into to the pros and, and seeing how that all came together. So I think you're a hundred percent right. I think there's a lot of people that are out there that are enjoying the game that are buying the discs and playing, but maybe don't necessarily understand how big it is on a, on a pro level. Yeah. I, I think that's the case. I think that the rep- recreational disc golf is huge now, especially with the COVID year. It seems like, I, I don't know. Our guys are saying that they think that 40% of the people playing disc golf started in night in 2020. That's what they're saying. That's, that's wow. a ridiculously big number. I believe it. Well, Nate, if you remember, uh, I, I'm a member of a group on Facebook that's got like 20 million members. It's a, it's a huge group. And one of the topics that came up was, you know, what have you started doing during COVID, you know, new things that you found. And there were just thousands of comments of people talking about playing disc golf, finding disc golf, loving disc golf. And it was just overwhelming how many comments came into that thread about disc golf. Yeah. I mean, I, that was one of going to be one of my next, next questions, but I feel like it's been answered. Like if this, this is, a, has been an unprecedented spike 
in in disc golf's popularity and i feel like you can see that just at every course i go to you can tell it's just there's more cars in the parking lot it's that simple <laughs> yeah sometimes you can't even get on a tee like at la mirada if you don't get there really early in the morning which is one of the you know very well-known courses and it, hey, there's two courses there two 18s you you can't really play after 11 or 12 there's just too many people on the course you know i mean wow. you can play but it's going to be really really slow yeah 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 it's it's amazing wow well, man, I'm, I, I think maybe time to get into some fan questions, but I, I'm, I'm going to say it now and I'm going to say it again. But thank you so much, Dave, for that's so interesting. And I hope we can have you back on again and go through some more eras and times because I don't know. It's just incredible to me, all the all the stories and, and hearing firsthand how so much of this stuff started. And I mean, obviously, disc golf is my life. So, you know, <laughs> it, it's a it, it's it's sort of crazy to uh, to think that that those efforts by you and others. Uh, have been able have built a platform for me to to live the life I live. So it's it's incredible. But can do, can we get to some fan questions for Dave? Yeah, we we got a ton of them, Dave. We uh, we put out some posts on our social media, let everyone know that you were going to be coming on, and I just got bombarded with questions. So we picked a few out. If you don't mind, maybe answering a, a couple fan questions for us before we let you go. No problem. All right, awesome. Uh, we had a really good group of audio questions rolling in. Uh, once again, Nate, you have brought in questions from all over the world from your fans. We've got questions from Sweden, Australia, and uh, it's really just overwhelming to see how many people are uh, are fans of the sport all over the world and that are taking time to send in these questions. So uh, let's start off with an audio question. Hey, what's up, Nate, Jared, and Mr. Dunapace? I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. My question's coming from Kansas City, Missouri, and it is, how do you guys see competitive disc golf changing or evolving in the next five to ten years? Thanks. Wow. Evolving. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way to say it. Um, I think it's, it's, it's definitely getting bigger, uh, the uh, tournament stuff, the competitive stuff, it might actually be splitting up in different kind of groups. You know, the, for instance, amateurs may start to have a, a media following and stuff like that. And the, and the pros too, thanks to uh, uh, while I'm thinking of it uh, to uh, Jomez and big sexy for the, the media stuff that made, <laughs> made uh, this golf way more uh palatable and accessible and enjoyable uh for a lot of people to watch i mean there was a lot of uh media before that but it really wasn't that good it wasn't that compelling and it was that combination of uh the expertise of the jomez guys with the cameras and stuff like that 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 they made it look so effortless. They, it was really great the way that they could follow the, the shots and, and tell the story of the flight of the disc with their cameras that the other companies, even the, the ones operating today, like the ones that just did last weekend, they're not in that class at all. No. Uh, no. And then on top of that, the, the big sexy commentary. It's like, wow, I mean, that marriage is is wonderful. Even if you have... <laughs> Even if you have great cameras, if you have crappy commentary, it still blows it for you. It's got to be that 
combination, and that's what you guys do uh, so well. And thank you very much, Nate, you and your partner. <laughs> oh, it's been, I'm just excited to get back in there. I mean, it's, I've been, it's been, uh, it's, I've been missing that about as much as I've been missing playing. So really excited to be back and able to bring that again to the people. I think that's uh, what I'm saying for the evolution. I think that's what's going to be part of the evolution of the sport going forward is the media that is covering the, the, the sport. It's, it's gotten bigger, but it, it can't just be more companies doing it. It has to be better coverage, you know, and, and that will make it a lot more compelling for people, non-competitive people to, to watch disc golf just because it's watchable. One of the reasons why you, you might want to watch ball golf is because, you know, it's so pretty. You know, you can see it's a park setting. It's beautiful. And uh, the people doing it, the voiceover people are, are professionals. They know exactly what they're doing. And uh, they can bring you right into the action, you know, like you and, and uh, Germ do. Yeah, my quick take on, on that idea. Uh, I, you know, I've been playing now 20, 20 years uh, and as a professional for like 15 or 16 and I've got that question so many times, like, what do you see? What's happening in the next five years? What do you see happening? And my stock answer for the last 12 or so years has been like, we're growing at a healthy rate. Like everybody always thinks we're about to blow up. And I felt like so many people have walked through the door and said, dude, we're about to be on MTV. We're about to be on ESPN. And I'm always been like, yeah, I've heard this one before. And I, I'm happy with the way disc golf's growing. It's a healthy growth. We're just moving along. And I think for the first time now, I feel like I was wrong. For a long time, I felt like, yeah, there's all these excited people, but it's just growing slow. And now it sort of feels like, oh, this is this is that thing. This is that explosion people were saying was coming that I always kind of thought, yeah, right. You know, it, you know we're going to get there someday, but it's not going to happen overnight. And this feels close as over, as close to overnight as as you could get. I don't know this 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 lately uh, this big explosion we've had in 2020. I mean. Uh, I guess, yeah, for the first time, I'm feeling wrong. I think I'm going to have to change my answer on that on that question in the future. Well, I hope you are wrong. It, it, it could be just a bubble, uh, a COVID bubble. And uh, nonetheless, even if it is a COVID bubble, so many people have been introduced to disc golf. A big, healthy chunk of those are going to stay and uh, become fans. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't think it's a sport that you play it a couple times and you you walk away from it. It's one of those things that really hooks you, and once you're in, you're in. That I yeah. think that's true for like sixty percent of the people that go out there and try it. That's a that's a big number. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge number. Um, got a, a fun question here on Facebook, um, which we again we put up a post about having you on, and uh, people went crazy about it. So, uh, oh, by the way, thank you to Michael Babbitt for that uh, audio question. His name didn't make it into his recording, but that's who sent that into us. Mike Barry from Facebook asks. Do you think discs like the Condor would make a comeback? And aren't you almost out of animal names to use for discs? Maybe a platypus next. I'd buy one. <laughs> uh, the Condor is, is it's not gone anywhere. It's just that a lot of people don't play with Condors, and, and Condors don't fit in your bag very well. Uh, I've heard... Uh, somebody referred to them as a ghetto rock for some reason. It <laughs> seemed to make sense. But, yeah, it's a big, giant rock, and it flies great, stuff like that. But, you know, they 
weigh up to 200 grams and they don't fit in your bag. And, you know, that's the reason why we took out all of our oversized discs out of the lineup, not because they weren't good. It's just they they were extra sizes that didn't want to fit into uh, disc golf bags. And we had s- smaller discs that could do the job just as well or better. There's so many, there are so many animal names left. We're, we're not even close to done. Oh yeah. Jeez. Who's naming those discs? Uh, I would say, I don't know, 95% of the names come from me. I think Love one it. of our latest, uh, Jeff Panis, I think he came up with Invader. It's not an animal, but you know. <laughs> no, hey, th- that's right. Um, let's go ahead and take another audio question. Hi, Dave, Nate, and Jared. I'm Arvid from Sweden, and I have two questions for Dave. Being the founder of Modern Disc Golf and having been a central figure in taking the sport forward for 40-something years, I wonder, Dave, what new sources of inspiration have you had through the years? Any big changes in the game coming from players, competitors, PDGA, or elsewhere come to mind? Would also like to hear your thoughts on Nate's poetry. Thanks a lot for all that you guys do. Oh, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> sure was. He may have a second career. I mean, I was I was right there with him. You know, <laughs> why are trees? You know, why are trees in the middle of the fairways? Put them on the sides of the fairway. Yeah. That's the answer to that one. But the other one, um, the reason why I can keep coming up with this stuff is because I'm a fan and I'm a player. And of course I'm a designer too. And I, I know what makes this fly. And there's a lot of things that can happen. Uh, not just with uh, the, the design of the disc, but also with the materials of the disc and the decoration of the disc and uh, you know, all kind of different little nuances. We're still coming up with, uh, well, we're in the process of, of implementing a technology that we started with the shark. And uh, it, you know, with shark and the leopard and uh, the Valkyrie, which is the VTech technology. And then we switched to, uh, well, the, I guess the Mako also and the Coyote before that. Uh, we have the VTech with the bead now, which is a, it's a, a form of mature VTech technology. And that's still getting into the marketplace, so to speak. And that kind of goes back to the change averse thing. You know, uh, it's amazing to me, absolutely mind blowing to me that people, disc golfers, professional disc golfers, maybe even you, Nate, uh, say, I don't like a bead or I do like a bead or something. And it's like, wow, what in the heck is the difference for the feel in the hand of a bead versus a non-beaded disc? And for the life of me, I can't, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, it's got to be, I know it's there or something like that. Sure. Uh, sure. I, I'm definitely guilty of that sometimes. I feel like I don't ever perceive it on a backhand, but I, I'm certainly guilty of trying to blame the bead for my forehand problems and whether, you know, it's like not, that's not necessarily, you know, I, I certainly don't understand what goes into disc design. I just throw the things, but I, I'm absolutely guilty of being like, ah, that didn't fly right. Maybe it's the bead. And yeah, I, you know, I, I welcome, I welcome your criticism in that, uh, in that field because you're the expert. 
Yeah, I've been baffled by that for for years. I mean, maybe because my background's a little bit different. I came from throwing lids. That was my first competitive disc was an 80 mold, which is a freestyle disc or an ultimate disc. Uh, actually, in my opinion, the best ultimate disc ever made was the original 80 mold. But uh, throwing that one and then switching to ours with the Arrow and the Eagle and then the AVR and then the beaded AVR and, and it, none of that ever made a, a little tiny bit of a difference to me in my throwing. Uh, it was the function of the disc that ma- mattered to me. Always the function of the disc. How did it fly? How did it perform? What was the torque resistance? You know, blah, blah, blah. Distance, everything. How could you range with it? You know, all kind of parameters like that. When, you know, and, you know, I, I, I gave you a disc just yesterday to test. And there's a lot of parameters that I'm interested in, you know, that, uh, you know, is that the material you want? Does the material feel good? Does it have the torque resistance that, you know, if it doesn't have what you want, what would you rather have? But when I get something like, oh, I don't like the bead, you know, that's like, oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we'll we'll talk more about this, but this new prototype is a big step in the right direction from the last one. I'll say that. Okay. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. Is Is that the platypus? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Uh, we got a question in from Dylan into our email. It was kind of a fun question. Dylan says, I am an airline pilot. I like to bring a few discs with me when I travel, but I can't bring a full bag. Dave, if you had to choose five discs to bring to an unknown course for a practice round, what would they be? Okay. I'm almost positive. I would not say the same five discs that just about anybody else would say. But you, you don't know what you're uh, going to be playing on. You don't know the conditions. You don't know if there's right, left, left, right shots or anything like that. So I would choose a bag of discs that uh, does both of those things really well. Uh, a a putt and approach disc, absolutely an invader. An invader is fairly neutral flyer, very good putter, very good approach shot. You know, it doesn't have a lot of dump to it. It's, it's uh, you can drive it, you know, 300 feet if you want to. Uh, and for that next slot, uh, it's kind of a, a fight between the, the uh, Lion and the Mako 3. Uh, you know, pretty straight, pretty neutral disc that you can turn over or you can throw in a hyzer. Uh, uh, and for the next slot after that, uh, probably a Leopard 3 or a TL3. You know, TL3 being a little more stable, a little bit longer, depending upon how much power you have and uh, how far you're throwing. And, and if you're throwing sidearm or backhand, so there's a lot of different variations. Past that, you know, if you're a 300-foot thrower uh, for long range, you get a turn. If you're a 350-foot thrower, uh, you can get a strike. And if you're a 400-foot thrower, you get a destroyer. Okay, great answer. Gosh, I could listen to you talk about discs forever, man. Um, it's it's really it's just uh, it's just awesome. Um, let's see here. Let's get another question in, and then we'll we'll let you go because I know you guys are super busy out there in Las Vegas, and we've just had so many questions that that poured in here. 
We're going to take a question from Luke from Australia, which is kind of a, a fun question. Here's someone else who just found disc golf, and he did it by accident. He was just looking for a great disc to throw on the beach, um, and he found one, decided to give it a go. He said he's been playing about eight weeks, and he is addicted. He's playing three times a week. He couldn't imagine not playing disc golf. Now, this is for you and Nate. He said he stumbled across this by accident. Other than disc golf, was there something else that you guys stumbled across by accident that you just can't live without now? Wow. Uh, kind of neat, right? Yeah. Mountain biking. I could yeah. even, I could almost even go the same place. I just got a mountain bike and I, and yeah, in the, in 2020 mountain biking's a habit or a, a, a hobby that I've picked up. Uh, but yeah, but totally by accident, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, even even I almost even found disc golf by accident. I mean, I was ultimate player first, you know, so I, I can I can relate there that it was like, yeah, there's a course in my town now and it's at the same park where I play ultimate. So, of course, I'm going to try it, you yeah. know, and that you know, that so that I, I kind of had a similar experience in that way. It's a, it's very similar. I mean, in, in the, especially in the covid environment, uh, you're outdoors, you get sunshine, a lot of vitamin D. Uh, there's no chance that you're going to get any kind of germs exercise. Uh, anybody can do it practically except for one of my sons. <laughs> uh, it, it's fun. Uh, you could do it competitively if you wanted to, but uh, uh, I think you got to be a little nuts to do that. Uh, you know. uh, but it's fun. You can, you can ride on tr- regular trails or you can do single track in the mountains or, uh, you know, it's pretty much ubiquitous. It's in Australia for sure. And, and Great Britain, all over Europe, uh, you know, Canada, United States, everywhere. So it's kind of similar to disc golf. Anybody can do it and it's all over the place. Absolutely. I, I, for me, it's probably like one time I got, I accidentally dunked one of my fries from Wendy's into the frosty. And, uh, (laughs) and that's, that's kind of like, that's kind of like my thing now. That's a hobby Uh, now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, one more and we'll let you go, Dave. Uh, Jarrett from Buffalo wants to know um, if you have a favorite disc in the Innova lineup. Each episode, Nate breaks down a disc. He pulls a disc out of his bag and he talks about why he uses it and what it does for him. What's your favorite disc from the Innova lineup and why? How do you use it and what do you use it for? Wow. Uh, every disc in my bag is my favorite right now. Okay. <laughs> and usually it's the disc that I've developed, uh, more recently. Uh, if I have to, if I had to name my all time favorite, it would be the AVR and all of our incarnations of the AVR, uh, after that, which includes my, the disc that I have for putting approach right now, which is the invader. And, so for that particular slot, the Invader is my, my favorite disc uh, in the bag. Uh, and then for driving, my favorite disc right now, because I'm a little bit power handicapped after my operation, is uh, Shrike. Uh, you know, so like I said, if you've got 350 foot power, which is all I have right now, Shrike's the one, and that's the one for me right now. Well, I didn't have an operation, and I'm a little power handicapped, so maybe I'll start throwing that strike a little bit as well. <laughs> Believe me, I'm 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 playing in two days with the uh, Heimberg, Wysocki, and Macbeth. I'm power handicapped as well. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You need a lesson with me, Nate. Look I'm at- ready. I'm ready. 
We'll get you up to 500 feet, no problem. Let's go. Gosh, I'm excited about that. Well, uh, Nate, you lined up another amazing guest for us. I told you before we got started, and I guess I'll let everyone else know, uh, in the five years that I've been podcasting, I have spoken with Grammy Award-winning musical artists, uh, Hall of Fame athletes in the four major sports, Victoria's Secret models, and I was actually a little nervous and anxious to to get this one in today because of how amazing it is uh, for all of the things that Dave and Innova has done for the sport. So, um Dave, thank you so much for coming on. And Nate, thank you so much for setting this up for our listeners, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was great. I hope we can have you back. And I also need you to go talk to Sam Ferentz because I reached out to him and he said he's too shy. So please, <laughs> please get in his ear because I want to hear his perspective as as the youngest uh, world champion who, that ever was. Uh, we, we need to have him on the show too. But so great to have you, Dave. And thank you so much for agreeing to make some time for us. And good luck in Vegas. I'm going to see you out there. Thanks. Well, Nate, you did it once again. You lined up another amazing guest for us. I think the listeners and fans of disc golf learned a lot today. I know I learned a lot today. I think you learned a lot today. What an amazing man Dave Donapace is. Yeah, absolutely. I learned a lot. I mean, I'm just thankful for the chance to have a conversation that long with him. I mean, I've we've been acquaintances for a long time. I'll see him at Innova, see him at the tournaments, but we're he's a busy guy and it's like hard to just be like, "Hey man, sit down, tell me stories for an hour or hour or two." But man, what a lucky thing to hear about the the origins of a lot of these things. I mean, the the stories that are in his head, it's just incredible to imagine being uh, right at the center of everything for the sport of disc golf. And what a long way he came talking about trying to find an investors to to get his first disc made. And uh, I think he's probably doing okay these days. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> deservedly so. Deservedly so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really look forward to, to having him back on and chatting because I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Uh, that is a guy who just, uh, you know, Ray Kroc didn't invent the cheeseburger, but he sure made it a whole lot better with McDonald's. And that's kind of kind of how I feel about Dave. Yeah. Yeah, that was exciting. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reinvigorated about the podcast. I always was excited, but man, that, that episode was so fun. Uh, I can't wait to get into more of like the historical figures of the game maybe kind of just what you needed before you get ready to to go out there and defend that championship man uh, how you feeling have you been seeing the guys kind of catching up with everybody are you are you ready to go do this thing man yeah yeah sure I, you know I, I never go into a tournament like planning to win that's not my style i go in there try to play my best and i see how it falls down and that's what i'm going to do again so get out there attack the course see how it goes hopefully win it now, do you know who your do you know who your grouping is for the for the first day? Yeah, yeah, that's why I mentioned being power challenged because I got Macbeth, Heimberg, and Wysocki. So, you know, some guys you may have heard of. Yeah, couple couple schlubs that'll be out there chucking some chucking yeah. some plastic with you. Just a bunch of ten fifty rated players. They don't mess around. I like how it's you guys are all stacked up. It's it's three of the big guns from Innova, and then Paul. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's the top top players in the world plus the de, plus the old uh, defending champ that hasn't played in a while, but he's he's coming back. Man, I'm uh, I'm super excited and and I can't wait. So uh, best of luck to you. Uh, go out there and have some fun. I know you've been really like I said in the beginning, you're chomping at the bit, ready to get back out there and and play. Yeah. It's been too long. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us once again. Make sure that you go ahead and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast so you get updates on when new episodes are going to be available. If you're listening to us on a platform that gives you an opportunity to leave some feedback, please do. Go ahead and put something down into the comments. And if you think we deserve that five-star rating, go ahead and click it. It really means a lot to Nate and I in the show. And of course, guys, don't forget to check out our sponsor at fisherdiscgolf.com. Hop on their website, check out all the different plastic and things that they have going on. Constantly new discs dropping. Maybe you're not in the market for a disc right now, but you will be soon. Check out fisherdiscgolf.com. Supporting our sponsors is the number one way to support our show. Until next time, Nate, everyone else is just kind of out there laying them up, but here... Yeah, man, I'm in Vegas. There's the, the the triple island holes here. You think I'm laying it up? No. Do or die. Do or die. I'm running it. He's Nate Sexton. I'm Jared Orr, and we will see you guys next week.